we left off at the first part of Daniel 8, verse 8, and we left off with the death of Alexander the Great. He died a broken man. Uh, I remember just shy of his 33rd birthday, he was deep in depression from alcohol and possibly from being infected with malaria as well. And his death is represented in Daniel's vision in this imagery in, in verse 8. The goat, this is Alexander the Great, the goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. All right, so what happens next after Alexander the Great dies? Well, his four generals step in and take over the territories in the known world of the Hellenistic or the Greek Empire. So the empire uh, under Alexander the Great after his death was divided into four parts. Macedonia and Greece were under General Cassander. Asia Minor and Thrace were under General Lysimachus. Syria and Babylonia were under General Seleucus. Uh, this is known as the Seleucid Empire. Kind of make a mental bookmark on this. He will ultimately, or this, uh, this kingdom, the uh, Seleucid Kingdom, will eventually be referred to as the King of the North when we get into Daniel 11. So that's something to make a mental note of. And uh, as we plow through Daniel 8 today, the Seleucid kings uh, are going to come into play here. So this is a real important uh, general, Seleucus. And then finally, Egypt, uh, Cyprus, Arabia, they come under uh, General Ptolemy. And this will become known in, in later on in Daniel as the king of the south. All right, so with, and, and we'll go over that again. I just want to introduce it just to make a mental note of it. So, with that background, let's pick up Daniel's narrative in, in Daniel 8. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. These four prominent horns are the generals that we just mentioned, Alexander the Great's generals. And again, uh, they're dividing up uh, his empire in, into the four areas that we, that we talked about. All right, so now let's watch what happens in verse 9. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and towards the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens, where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. All right, so now the question is, and I uh, 
at first blush, I have to confess, I was thinking, well, this sounds a lot like the Antichrist. But as we dig a little bit deeper, we find it's going to be someone else before the Antichrist. And by the time we get to the end of this, I think you may join me in thinking it's a both and um, that we're being given both a short term picture of who this is and then the end times picture of who this is. All right, so let's dive in and, and, and uh, see what happens. Where does this ruler come from? Well, he comes from the Greek Empire, from the Seleucid part of the divisions of Alexander the Great's empire. And uh, coming after one of his four generals, remember each of those generals uh, took one of the divisions and uh, Seleucus was one of those generals. And so this horn that grows so powerful is from the Seleucid kings or the Seleucid uh, kingdoms. This, this power, this amazingly powerful, savvy, violent king is going to conquer both Egypt and Israel when all is done. This ruler, this new power is going to bring Israel under his control. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to disrupt the worship of God. And he's going to demand that worship be directed towards him, not God. Now, does that remind you of the Antichrist? Sure. Sure it does. But as we're going to find out, short term, we're talking about a very specific person. Because we're not there yet in history. In fact, we're not even to the birth of Christ yet in terms of the interpretation of this particular dream. Now, let's, uh, let's get Daniel set in the historical timeline. Daniel is experiencing this dream about 547 B.C., and that's in the third year of King Belshazzar's rule. Now, remember, King Belshazzar, is, uh, his, his dad is actually the king, but his dad is off in Arabia doing other things, and so he puts Bel Belshazzar uh, in, in charge of the empire based in Babylon. So the events described in this dream, although Daniel is dreaming about them in 547 BC, he's going to dream about things that happened centuries later. Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC, about 224 years after Daniel dreams this dream. Interesting. But then this new ruler, this small horn named in, in uh, verse 9 here, he's going to rise to power about 170 to 175 B.C. So it's about 370, 373 years after Daniel dreams it. So there's almost 400 years of space after Daniel's gone uh, before his dream becomes... Uh, not true, but before his dream works out in real time. So who is this rascal? Who is this amazing power? Well, uh, many scholars, uh, Dr. David Hawking amongst them, and, and Dallas Theological Seminary scholars as well, name this super, uh, superpower 
the super king as King Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. He was born in 215 BC in Greece, rose to power between 170, 175 BC, ruled about 10 years, and then he died at about age 51 on the battlefield in Iran around 164 BC. So how do we know about Antiochus? Epiphanes. How do we know about him? Well, we know about him from the books we can read as history, but books we don't accept as the divine breathed word of God. And they're in what we call the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal books. Again, we don't, uh, in, in Protestantism, Protestantism, accept them as the divinely breathed word of God, but they do have st uh, historical value. It, they have the same historical value as if we might be reading Josephus or Eusebius or Encyclopedia Britannica. So these apocryphal books have good value to us in terms of learn, learning about history, just as if we were reading a textbook. So the period of the apocryphal books cover roughly the silent period, the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the end of Malachi, so to speak, to the beginning of Matthew. Now, I feel this is really important. We can't fully understand, I don't think, the meaning of Daniel 8 without understanding who Antiochus Epiphanes is, nor can we understand the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah without understanding who uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is. So bear with me, because we're going to look at these keys to more fully understand Daniel 8 and the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah through the uh, life of Antiochus Epiphanes. This period is radically important to the Jews, especially the Jewish history, that's contained in the four, the four apocryphal books of Maccabees 1, 2, 3, and 4. Maccabees 1, 2, 3, and 4. All right, so to get the historical context of where we're going, we're going to go on a journey into the historical books of parts of Maccabees 1 and 2. Are you with me? Here we go. All right, we're going to introduce you to the history of Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to go back now, uh, beginning in Maccabees 1, and they're going to talk about uh, the death of Alexander. Alexander was Philip's son, a Macedonian, one of the Western peoples known as the Kittim. After Alexander became king of Greece, he defeated King Darius, who ruled the Persians and the Medes. By doing so, Alexander greatly enlarged his realm. He successfully fought many battles, conquered fortresses, and put to death many kings. He advanced to the very ends of the known earth, plundering nation after nation. And finally, his battles reached an end, and he was widely recognized as supreme king, which made him proud. He built a very strong army and ruled countries, nations, and princes, and they all owed allegiance to him. But eventually, Alexander fell sick and was confined to bed, and he knew that he was dying. 
He therefore called for his most esteemed officers. We would call them his generals, those who had been raised with him, and he divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. Then Alexander died, having ruled for 12 years. Subsequently, his officers began to rule, each in his own territory. They ruled as kings, and after them, their descendants ruled for many years. Together, they caused much suffering across the earth. From these descendants sprouted a sinful root. And I, I really should get the pronunciation in, in the original. It's, it's really closer to Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the son of King Antiochus, and he had been brought up in Rome as a hostage. Antiochus Epiphanes began to rule in the year 137, according to the calendar of the Greek kingdom parenthetically here, don't worry about the date 137, that's in the Greek calendar, not in ours. Verse 11 uh, of uh, Maccabees 1. At that time, some renegade Israelites emerged. These people went against their ancestral laws and encouraged many other Jews to join them. And they spoke up saying, let's make an agreement with the Gentiles around us because many horrible things have happened to us since we separated ourselves from them. And their proposal pleased their fellow Jews. So what we have here is a, a sect of the Jewish people who are willing to walk away from their God in order to please uh, these uh, descendants, political descendants of Alexander the Great. Verse 13, some of them eagerly went to King Antiochus, who gave them permission to start living by the laws of the Gentiles. Consequently, they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem following the Gentile custom. And let me stop there for a second, and you may say, well, what's wrong with building a gym, a gymnasium in Jerusalem following the Gentile custom? Well, it's because if you went to the gymnasium, you went there and took off all your clothes and stuff happened after that. All right, moving on. They even took steps to remove the marks of circumcision, utterly abandoning the Holy Covenant. They joined with Gentiles and gave themselves over to an evil course. So these sect of Jews totally uh, withdrew from the law. And they removed even circumcision, which is their identity, right? Uh, in obedience to God, they removed that from, from their uh, religious customs and from their traditions. So when Antiochus felt that his own kingdom was fully established, he determined also to take control of the land of Egypt so he could rule over both kingdoms. So Antiochus invades Egypt with a very strong force, including soldiers in chariots and on elephants. So we have elephants entering uh, Egypt, as well as cal uh, cavalry and a large fleet. When Antiochus met the Egyptian king Ptolemy in battle, Ptolemy and his forces hastily retreated. Many were wounded and killed. But Antiochus and his forces were able to capture the fortified cities of Egypt and plunder the land. So Antiochus defeats Ptolemy and takes those territories, including Egypt, 
and uh, that, that Ptolemy had been over. All right, moving on now. After he, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, after he conquered Egypt, Antiochus returned in the year 143. Again, an don't confuse that with our calendar. He went up to Israel and entered Jerusalem with a strong force. With arrogance, he went into the sanctuary of the temple. He took the gold altar, the lampstand for the light, and all of its equipment. He also took the table that was used for the sacred bread, drink offering cups, bowls, gold censers. Remember, the gold censers uh, were used to put the incense inside and burn the incense. A curtain, crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple, he stripped it all. He took silver, gold, and costly equipment. He took every hidden treasure that he could find. Taking it all, he went back to his own land. He committed murder and spoke very arrogantly. Every community in Israel grieved deeply. Rulers and elders, elders groaned. Young women and men became faint. The women's beauty faded. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Antiochus Epiphanes was such a deadly force, a destructive force, that the beauty of the Israelite women actually faded. And it was because they were so distressed and um, overcome by this evil. And that, that's, uh, to me, that's just a, tra a tragic um, outcome. The women's beauty faded. Every bridegroom was saddened and intended brides sat mourning in their chambers. Even the land shook for its people and all of Jacob's house was clothed with shame. Two years later, to collect tribute or taxes from the Judean cities, King Antiochus sent his chief officer who came to Jerusalem with a large army. The agent spoke peaceably, and the Jews believed him, but he was deceitful. Without warning, he attacked the city, dealt it a brutal blow, and he killed many Israelites. You see the bloodbath that is happening here? He plundered the city, he set fires within it, destroyed its houses, and tore down its protective walls. His forces took women and children as prisoners and seized livestock. After all this, the agent's forces fortified David's city with a very strong wall and powerful towers, and it became their fortress. So they take over Jerusalem, and they make it their own fortress. They stationed sinful, immoral people there, and these soldiers held down their position. They stocked up with weapons and food and collected the spoils of Jerusalem and stored them there. They were a great menace. They ambushed the sanctuary. They were an evil opponent of Israel at all times. Its inhabitants shed innocent blood all around the sanctuary, and they even polluted the sanctuary itself. Because of them, those who lived in Jerusalem fled. The city became a dwelling peace place for strangers. She was like a stranger to her offspring, and her children abandoned her. She referring to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Her sanctuary was as barren as a desert. 
her feasts turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into shame, her honor into contempt. Her dishonor became great as her glory had been. Her joy turned to sadness. Then King Antiochus sent word throughout his entire kingdom that everyone should act like one people. Giving up their local customs, the Gentile nations all readily accepted the king's command. So you've got another one world order happening here. Many Jews also willingly adopted the king's religion, and they sacrificed to idols and violated the Sabbath. So King Antiochus Epiphanes was successful in turning the Jews upon themselves and turning uh, a sect of them against their own god. The king sent messengers carrying letters to Jerusalem and the surrounding towns of Judah. He directed Jews to follow customs that had been unknown in the land. He banned the regular practices of entirely burnt offerings, sacrifices, and drink offers in the sanctuary. He banned the observance of Sabbaths and feast days. The sanctuary and its priests were to be defiled. See, so he has totally destroyed the identity and the theocracy of Israel. He has robbed them of their God, he has robbed them of their worship, and he has turned the Jews against themselves. He said they should build new altars together with sacred precincts and shrines for idols. They should sacrifice pigs and other ritually impure animals. Can you imagine now forcing the Jewish people to sacrifice pigs, which they would never do, right? They were having to sacrifice pigs on the altars that the king had set up. Jews were no longer to circumcise their sons. They were supposed to make themselves repulsive to God by doing unclean and improper acts. All of this was intended to make them forget the law and change its regulations. Whoever did not obey the king would die. In this way, Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors all over, the, over all the people, and he commanded the Jewish communities to offer pagan sacrifices town by town. Many Jewish people, those who abandoned the law, followed suit and did evil in the land. The king's inspectors drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had available. Now on the 15th day of Kislev in the year 145, they set up a disgusting and destructive thing on the altar for entirely burned offerings in the sanctuary. The inspectors built other altars in the surrounding Judean towns, and they burned incense as the doors of houses and in the streets. When they found lost scrolls, they tore them to pieces and burned them. So you see, they're erasing the Jewish people's history and the relationship with God bit by bit by bit by bit. If anyone was caught in possession of a copy of the covenant scroll, or if anyone kept to the law, that person was condemned to death by royal decree. They were unrelenting in attacking Israelites, all those who were identified as law observant month after month throughout the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar, built over the altar for entirely burnt offerings. In keeping with the decree, they killed 
the women who had circumcised their sons. They hanged the infant boys from their mother's necks. There's a word picture for you, right? They hanged infant boys from their mother's necks. The king's agents also killed the families of the women, as well as those who had performed the circumcision. But many in Israel stood strong, and they resolved in their hearts not to eat impure food. They chose to die rather than to be fought, defiled by the food or to dishonor the holy covenant, and they did die. A great anger came against Israel. All right now, it's going to get interesting. Here we go. Maccabees 2. In those days, a priest from uh, Jorab's uh, family named Mattathias, the son of John and grandson of Simeon, moved from Jerusalem and settled in Modin. He had five sons, John, who had the surname Gadi, Simon, called Thassi, Judas, called Maccabeus. Remember that one. Eliaser called Averon and Jonathan called Aprius. Mattathias saw the offensive actions against God that were taking place in Judah and Jerusalem. He said, horrible, why was I born to see this, the ruin of my people, the ruin of the holy city? Why was I born to live there when I was given over to the enemy and when the sanctuary was given over to strangers? Her temple has become like a person stripped of honor. Her glorious equipment has been taken away into exile. Her babies have been killed in her streets, her young people by the enemy's sword. Is there a nation that has not taken away some part of her majesty and seized upon her loot? All her adornment has been taken away. She is no longer free, but is instead a slave. Look, our holy place, our beauty, and our glory have all been destroyed. The Gentiles have trampled them. Why should we live any longer? Then Mattathias and his sons tore their clothes and put on mourning clothes, and they lamented. At that time, the king's officers were enforcing the decrees to give up Jewish practice. They came to the town of Modain to make its people offer pagan sacrifice. And many from Israel came out to them, including Mattathias and his sons. Then the king's officers spoke to Mattathias. He says, you're a leader, honored and important in this town and supported by sons and brothers. Be the first to come and do what the king has commanded, as have all the Gentiles, the people of Judah, and those who are left in Jerusalem. Then you and your sons will be counted among the king's closest political advisors. You and your sons will be honored with silver, gold, and many gifts. But Mattathias said loudly, even if all the nations that live under the king's rule obey him and have chosen to follow his orders, departing from their ancestral religion, my sons and brothers and I will continue to live according to our ancestors' covenant. We will never abandon the law and its commands. We won't obey the king's orders by turning aside from our religion to either the right or to the left. And when he, this is interesting, now catch this. When he finished speaking, a Jew came forward in plain sight 
to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modain, in keeping with the king's command. In other words, as Mattathias is saying, we are not going to depart from our God. We are not going to submit to your authority. What happens? One of Mattathias's fellow Jews goes and in obedience to the king, defiles the altar and offers a sacrifice on the altar. Watch what happens. When Mattathias saw this action, he burned with zeal and his spirit was stirred up. He gave way to his righteous anger, and he ran over and he killed the man on the altar. In other words, he killed his fellow Jew who had chosen to make a sacrifice on the altar against God's will and according to the king's pleasure. What did Mattathias also not only kill that brother, he also killed the king's officer who was overseeing the sacrifice at the time, and he tore down the altar. So here we have a revolution that is sparked by one man who had the courage to stand up. He burned with zeal for the law, just like Phinehas uh, did against Zimri, Saul's, uh, or Salu's son. Then Mattathias shouted loudly in the town, everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant should come with me. So he and his sons fled to the hills and left behind all they had in the town. And at that time, many who sought righteousness and justice went to live in the desert. And they were there with their sons, their wives, and their livestock because troubles pressed heavily, uh, heavily on them. The king's officers and the troops in Jerusalem, David's city, learned that those who had rejected the king's command had gone down into hiding places in the wilderness. Many pursued and overtook them. The king's military forces camped outside them and prepared for battle against them on the Sabbath. And they said to them, enough of this. Come out and do what the king commands and you will live. But the Israelites responded, we won't come out and we won't do what the king commands and violate the Sabbath. So the enemy immediately attacked them. Still, they didn't answer or throw a rock at them or even block up their hiding places. They said, let's all die in our innocence. Heaven and earth will testify on our behalf that you are killing us unjustly. So the troops attacked them on the Sabbath. They died with their wives and children and livestock, as many as 1,000 people. And when Mattathias and his friends learned about this, they deeply mourned for the dead. And they said to each other, if we all do as our people have done and refuse to fight against the Gentiles for our lives and our commandments, they will soon eliminate us from the earth. So they decided that day, we will fight against anyone who comes to attack on the Sabbath. Let's not all die as our people did in their hiding places. And at the time, the company of Hasidians, mighty warriors of Israel, united with them, and they offered their lives willingly for the law. Others who became fugitives to escape their troubles joined them as well and reinforced them. And together they organized an army, and in their fury they struck down sinners and renegades. Survivors fled to the Gentiles for safety. And Mattathias and his friends went around tearing down the altars, 
to other gods. They forcibly circumcised boys whom they found uncircumcised within the borders of Israel. They hunted down arrogant people and their missions were successful. They rescued the law from the power of the Gentiles and kings, and they never let the sinner regain power. Quite a story, isn't it? So that's the story of Antiochus, the fourth Antiochus Epiphanes. So you see the Jewish revolt here. It is because of that Jewish revolt, and we won't go into all the story right now. You, you probably know it, but that's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. And had it not been, well, it was Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, his armies and the trashing of Jerusalem and the murder of the Israeli people that, uh, that caused the, Mac the Maccabees to revolt. And uh, the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah uh, celebrates uh, that, that victory uh, through the, uh, the lighting of the menorah. So, Maccabees. By the way, the, Mac, the, the word Maccabees, um, if you go back to its Hebrew roots, means hammer. And I think that's, that's probably a good description. These, these Israelites, these Jews, became the hammer that struck back at, uh, at the Grecian Empire. All right. Moving on in Daniel 8. Any questions yet? Yes. Yeah, I I still didn't get the Hanukkah. What what how? What as a my, celebration of of the Maccabees? True, but when what was when did it come? And well, I don't. I want to finish this. I don't want to get okay. hung up on Hanukkah, but I, I'll do that later. Well, okay. I'll, I'll do a section on Hanukkah, but I I don't want to disrupt our, okay. our train here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but anyway, just, just for now, note that the celebration of Hanukkah is as a result of the revolt of the Maccabees and the eventual victory over uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. But I, I will go into that next week a little bit and unpack that. I want to try to squeeze the rest of Daniel 8 in here. Okay, so one more question. On, yep. the, on the, the Maccabees and... Now, but how far did they, this is toward the end of the Greek rule, right? This, um, this is, yeah, we are on the cusp of the decline and the destruction of the Grecian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire. And what's going to take over is obviously the Roman Empire. And again, we're talking um, uh, around 170 to 164 BC, about uh, almost 200 years before the birth of Christ. Okay. Okay. Having that in mind, let's get back to Daniel now, 9 through 11. See if this doesn't come to life a little bit more, having read that history of the Maccabees. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very small, great. It extended toward the south and the east and towards the glorious land of Israel. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army. 
throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It's a metaphor for uh, trampling God's heavenly army, the, the nation of Israel. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. In other words, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes attacked God himself by destroying the worship of his people and the temple where that worship would occur. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and the truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Antiochus Epiphanes. However, let's move on. Daniel says, I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the temple will be made right again. Let me uh, grab a sip of coffee to help me get through this a little bit. The interpretation, and I think doc, Dr. David Hawking does a good job of this. So the 2300 evening is in days. If you divide that by 365, our measure of a year, you get a period of about six years. And it starts with the murder of the Jewish high priest named Onias in 171 BC. So this involves uh, the armies, the, the officials of Antiochus Epiphanes killing the Jewish high priest in 171 BC. And after they kill the high priest, Antiochus Epiphanes sets up his own set of pseudo priests. So the 2300 days and nights clock starts ticking with the assassination of the high priest in 171 BC. The desecration, desolation of the temple continues for six years, and it ends with the Jewish revolt and the reestablishment of the cleansing of the temple by the Maccabees on December 25, 165 BC. Six years after the assassination of the high priest Onias II. So 23 days, 2300 days divided by our calendar of uh, 365 days a year equals just over six years. And that fits the historical narrative of the Maccabean revolt that we read, the revolution and the reestablishment of the temple. Now, that is relatively the short-term representation of this fearsome king. Here's the long-term rep representation, the eschatological representation, the end times rep representation. It is the foreshadowing of the Antichrist as well, who does similar things, right? He desecrates the temple. But the, remember, this is a foreshadowing. A historical figure here is Antiochus Epiphanes, but he is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come. 
Verse 15, as I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of the vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me, and I heard a human voice calling out from the Ulai River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. Wow, gets to meet Gabriel. And Gabriel approached the place where I was standing. I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. And while he was speaking, I fainted and laid there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. So Daniel here, he's, he's so overcome with the ramifications of this vision. Remember, he is seeing his people decimated. He is seeing his, his uh, people, the, the mothers with their infants. He's, he's seeing these, uh, these forces from the Greeks take those infants and hang them and uh, to death from their mother's own necks. He's he's overcome by this, and he he, he faints on the ground. But Gabriel, the angel, r- revives him. He rouses him up, and he says, "I'm here to tell you what's going to happen." And here is where we see both the historical future of Israel under Greek or Greek rule, culminating with the Maccabean revolt and the restoration of the temple, and At the same time, we get the foreshadowing of the Antichrist, his desecration of the temple, and then his punishment as Jesus comes back to earth at the second coming. All right, so in verse uh, 20, here's what Gabriel says. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. That's uh, Alexander the Great. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Those are the generals of Alexander the Great who take over those four parts of the kingdom. Verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they, feel he is, when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. History reveals that Antiochus IV may have incurred a battle injury during a, a battle he was fighting in Persia. And in the process, he he contracted some disease that caused his body to waste away from the inside out. God reserved a very ugly, painful, morbid, morbid death for this particular king, 
I'm assuming, in judgment for what he did. So God struck him dead, not just by a battle wound, but by a horrible death. And uh, there is some thought that possibly it also affected his mind as well. And there was some mental illness at the end as well. So he died a ugly, complete mess. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Now, why seal up the vision? Why did Gabriel have him seal up the vision? Remember, this stuff is not going to take place for another 200, 300, 400 years, depending on what part of the narrative you look at. The point was not to make the vision secret, but to hold it to reveal it at the proper time to the nation of Israel through Daniel's writings. The time of the third year of Belshazzar's rule was not the time God chose to have Daniel reveal these future events. God wanted that to be held, to be revealed later. If you remember in chapters 2 through 7, generally, they deal with the Gentiles' uh, history with Israel. But chapters 8 through 12 deal with Israel's future history with the Gentile world. So in that Daniel was mainly speaking to the Gentiles or the Babylonians in chapters 2 through 7, it's written in uh, uh, Aramaic. And in chapters basically 8 through 12, it's written in Hebrew because now the focus is on the Hebrew people and how they deal with the Gentiles. All right, final note on chapter 8. Wow, we're going to make it. I'm, I'm surprised. All right, here we go. Verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterwards, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. And it's no wonder that Daniel was perplexed, right? We have this dual prophecy of his Jewish brothers and sisters, his descendants being murdered, the temple being sacked, God being mocked, and in the somewhat distant future of, oh, 373 years or so, that will happen, not to mention the foreshadowing of the Antichrist and his murderous rule. And so you see the, the almost mirror image of the Antichrist and Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanies, and both received and will receive divine judgment. The suffering of the nation of Israel is is gut wrenching uh, in both its in both of those prophetic histories to come. And uh, by the way, Epiphanes, this is a name that Antiochus gave to himself. His uh, his birth name was actually Mithrat. Mithridates, Mithridates, and he chose the name Epiphanes because Epiphanes means God manifest or a glorious manifestation. So he was so narcissistic, so arrogant, so murderous, so intent on making himself a god, he takes a name that means the manifestation of God the uh, the uh, revealing the coming of God. And, and so you see how warped 
this guy was. And uh, he, he, again, had the desire to be uh, worshipped in the uh, Seleucid Empire. Wow, we made it through Daniel 8. Wow. wow. Almost makes your head spin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did that did that help to get the history of, of Antiochus Epiphanes from the Maccabees? It to me brought verse nine through what was it eleven to uh, life. Yeah. Because now we understand all that was involved. We understand uh, Mattathias. We understand Judas Maccabeus. We understand the Maccabean revolt, and uh, and how that all played into uh, basically a revolution against Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. So again, this vision that Daniel gets in Daniel eight is going to be relayed later. Uh-huh. And it is not until God gives uh, Daniel permission to share the stories that that uh, the interpretation of this uh, of this dream. And remember, we're back in the third reign of Belshazzar right now. We're 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 back in the five thirty sevens at the moment, and the stuff that God is giving Daniel to to interpret won't happen for depending on what part of Daniel 8 you look at, 242 years, 373 years, almost uh, 400 years later. 